And so today we're gonna to be in Acts 17. Surprise, surprise, right? We're gonna be in our series called Witness, um, the 17th uh, installment of this series. Um, and what I've learned, um, if, if, if you guys are reading your 412 reading plan at all, um, I hope that you are. We're, we're going through the, the entire book, of, or excuse me, we're going through the entire Bible um, this year as a, as a church. And what I wanna show you is like, uh, throughout the Bible from Genesis to, to Revelation, we see a constant story of God's faithfulness. And what I love about it is this past week, what God's been doing in my heart is he's been kind of giving me a fresh sense of what the church is. And it kind of goes along with our series called Witness. And what I love about it is if you just erase your mind a second from, from every preconceived notion of what the church is, about your church experience, your church hurt, um, anything that you've walked through in life, you know, just erase that for a second. And let's read Colossians chapter one, verse 18 together. And it says this, it'll be on the screen, I believe. It says, and he, which is Jesus, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Well, why? So that in everything he might have supremacy. And we're gonna read a little bit more on that later. But what I wanna show you is that guys, we are the body of Christ. And I know that we say that and it's so we've, we've said it so many times before and it's so easy just to kind of become numb to that, that we're the body of Christ. You can do the, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, we open up, here's all the people. You can do all those things. But listen, it, 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 we have to understand what that means of that we are the body. If we are the body and Christ is the head, then Christ has supremacy in our life. He has supremacy in our family. He has supremacy in how I treat my wife, my, my, my kids. He has supremacy in how I spend my money, how I work at my job, how I, how I treat my friends, how I, he has supremacy in all things. And as I read in chapter Acts 17, this is kind of what we're gonna be looking at. And um, if, you, if, you don't have your, if you have your Bibles, um, turn to Acts 17, that's where we'll be at today. But my heart for the church is that we would come back into alignment with our Lord. Because I think what's happened over the course of many generations is that we've forgotten that Jesus has set up his church on earth to spread the good news of the gospel to every square inch of this planet and to see his glory multiplied throughout the earth, every member doing their part. Because what I know is, what I've kind of had to ask myself, or you can ask yourself is, have we gotten comfortable with our lives? And I think it's, it's, it's important to ask that question now because do you know why people are, are, are struggling with anxiety, fear, panic at this moment? is because something has come in and changed their environment. Something has come in and changed the way they do life. It's making them shift their, their schedules and their time and their, and their work and their families and there's different things. And so when we understand the gospel, when we understand who we are in Christ, there's a security that comes in. Have we lost our vision for the church? Our vision is to, to seek and save the lost, to seek and save, to seek and point them to Jesus, to seek out people who are longing for something that only Jesus can fulfill. Have we lost connection to the head or is Jesus really Lord of your life? And that's the question that we see throughout scripture as we go through and you can look in your own lives and see the same thing. But our culture, what I wanna tell you is our culture doesn't need a church filled with marginal Christians committed only until it gets uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Like when I look at scripture, I, I see a church that is full of people passionately following Jesus. Not only following Jesus, but they're taking on the identity of who Jesus said they were and living in power. And I'm like, man, that's, that's something big there. So as I was reading this, 
Our culture needs to see a real Jesus living inside of us. The way that we live, the way that we interact with the gospel, because if I go to a person and say, this is the gospel, that person's not gonna look at the Bible and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. He's gonna look at your life and see if it lines up with this and he's gonna say, that makes sense. And so that's the heart behind the gospel as we're doing this. Like Instead of running away from what God's calling us to do, it's time to engage in it. It's time to get uncomfortable. Instead of holding up these masks of righteousness that we try to hold up sometimes, it's time to walk in Christ's righteousness instead of our own because we have none to give. It's time for, for, for there to be a real dying of self in the church and a real coming alive to, to Christ, even if that makes us uncomfortable. Last night, we had, um, uh, we had a men's retreat this weekend, for those of you that, that don't know. All right, yes, yes, a lot. There's a few, there's a few of us in here uh, that, that were there, obviously. Um, uh, quite a few. So um, what, what I want to show you is that, that last night we had a, a, a time around the campfire. We had some dying moments, a dying to some things that we were holding on to. And what I want to say is like, there, there was these moments of understanding of like, if I'm dying to this, now what? I need to come alive in Christ, who he calls me to be, who he's called me to be in scripture. And it's time for us to see a real coming alive in that moment. Because a lot of people have been praying. I see it on Facebook. I see it all over the place. All these people that are, that are these pastors are, we're going to have a time of prayer and fasting for revival, all these types of things. Well, first of all, only God brings revival. But what I believe we need more than that is we need an awakening. We need, to be, we need to wake up to what God has called us to and who he's called us to be. We need to worship him in spirit and in truth for who he is, not who we've created him to be. And I, I sing songs like Waymaker and I'm like overcome with emotion because I can almost see the, the, the realms of heaven open up and I can see my king on his throne. And it just makes me just overcome with just wanting to sit in that moment and raise my hands and say, you're worthy of all things. I'm nothing, Lord. Just thank you for giving me an opportunity just to be able to come into your presence. Because when you see God, man, when you see God, you don't follow him at a distance. You don't hold on to your desires or your financial dreams anymore. What you do is you fall on your face. The Bible says anytime that somebody came face to face with an angel, they fell on their face as though dead. When you come to face to face with God, you're laid bare. And my heart would be today that we would be laid bare before God as we read through Acts 17, looking at some of these things, because when you see Jesus, you fall down and you worship. And many people in the church today haven't truly met Jesus. Let's just be real. I don't, I'm, whether you're watching at home or here, like this is, this is the truth. And that's why it's so hard to, for people in that boat to submit and follow him no matter what. Because when things get hard, when things get testing, when things happen, when trials come, it's easy to run the other way. And that's why it's so hard for the world to believe the church's message because we have a lot of fearful Christians. Because the world doesn't need a fearful Christian. In a time of crisis, in a time of, of fear, the world needs a fearless church. A church that stands on the promises of God. And today, if you, if you got your Bibles in Acts 17, we're going to be looking and we're going to see a culture in Athens much like the culture that we live in, steeped in idolatry and worship of self. But before we get started, I want to clarify something really important is that idol worship is just as prevalent today, if not more. Than our, in our culture than it was in Athens. I mean, y'all have seen it um, there's a quote by John Calvin that says, the human heart is an idol factory. 
And I know that to be true in my life because it takes that long for me to worship something that I really like. And the, 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 the biggest idol in my life is usually me because I worship me by the things that I buy, the things that I do, the things that I try to experience. I want to experience more things. I want to get it entertained. Lord, you know, I, I try to I buy things. I go places, entertain me, entertain me. It make me feel good. And, I, and I, I'm trying to, and it ends up being a, a, a form of, of self-worship. If you remember in Exodus, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, it took only 40 days from when Moses went to talk with God on Mount Sinai for the Israelites to fall into idolatry. 40 days. That's not very long, right? Some of you guys are like, well, I mean, I could have lasted longer than 40 days. I bet you couldn't have. Because these jokers literally saw God on the mountain in fear and they were terrified, oh my God. And it's, it, these guys, 40 days, gone. And they demanded Aaron to make these, this new God for them. And they call, this, this is the image of God that, that brought us out of Egypt. This is the one, this is this golden calf. Apparently this golden calf led us out of Egypt. Let's, let's make sacrifices to him. But listen, our culture is stuck in a very similar pattern of thinking. We worship the image of man. Pornography. What that is, is you're worshiping the human form, lusting after the form of, of a human. Consume, we're consumed with our appearance. There, there's, there's women and men in the room this, just like that, that are consumed with how we look. I have to look this way or look that way to be accepted by my culture. Or be, I have to feel comfortable looking this way or I won't, be, I, just, I won't feel good or secure. Always thinking about how we look. And when that happens, who is our eyes looking at? Us. We worship sports teams. I, I'm just as guilty as anybody in this room, but Super Bowl Sunday is the biggest, one of the biggest worship days in the world. We worship football teams and athletes. We worship baseball teams and all these different types of sporting events. One of the biggest ones is we worship money. The, the pursuit of riches is always going to hurt somebody. It's either going to hurt you, it's going to hurt your family, or it's going to hurt your relationship with God. Those three things. And don't play with money or greed because those three things are what, that's what's gonna happen. And what happens is we end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator is what scripture says. But if you follow, if you're a follower of Jesus in this place, God has given you clear directions, very clear directions in the scripture to follow in his word as you align with him. In Colossians chapter three, verse one and two, I memorized these with some of my guys recently. It says, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so as I look at that, does this define your life? Christian in this room, Christian at home, on your couch, in your chair, wherever you're watching from, does this define your life? Is there fruit to prove that? Is there a constant seeking and setting and happening in your life? Am I, and you look at both of these words, this is, this is a very actional word. I'm seeking and I'm setting. I'm seeking and I'm setting. And today as we read through Acts 17, we're gonna see an example of a follower of Jesus that is brokenhearted at the culture around them. But almost, but, but almost someone who has a loving response for them as well. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this time. I pray that you would just be in this word. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you want us to see. I pray that you would convict our hearts, Lord, open us up and just pour into us what you want us to hear and know. God, convict our hearts where we're wrong. Give us the boldness and the courage to change and to walk in obedience to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. And so for the past few weeks, Acts 15, 14, 15, 16, we've seen Paul 
and a few others of his, of his friends on, on a couple of missionary journeys through places like Galatia, Philippi. And when, when you come to chapter 17, if you've been reading along in this, uh, with the church, what 17 lays out is a summary of Paul's ministry in three cities. It's Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And how some of these people in these three cities, how they responded to the gospel. There's three different responses to the gospel you see in these three cities. But what I want to do today is I want to focus on chapter um, 17, verse 16 through 34, while Paul is in Athens. And so I just want to jump in. I want to dissect this scripture, and then I want to give us two or three points to take home. Is that good? And so let's read chapters, uh, chapter 17, verse 16. We'll read this together. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Okay, let's start right there. We're going to stop there for a second. At this point in history... Athens was in a period of decline, okay? Um, it was still recognized as a city of culture and, and education, but the glory of politics and commerce had long since faded. It, was, it had a famous university, um, numerous beautiful buildings and, and, and temples to different gods and goddesses, but it was not the influential city that it had once been in, in history, the city had given itself over to this cultural paganism where they worship gods of all different types of things. As you, I'm sure you probably know, they worship things like uh, novelty, which is, we just wanna know what's new, what's new, what's new, what's new. We want the next new thing. Anybody else in here like new stuff? I, I do, right? I want the next new thing. The next, this is not new enough. I need a new car. I need a new, I need a new this, a new house, new this, new, new wife, new husband. I need, I need something new to make me feel better to make me have some adrenaline. I need, I need some help here. They, they, they worship uh, philosophy, the, the, the art of knowing things. Who, uh, how much do I know? Do I know more than you? If I knew more than you, that means I'm above you. And so there was a, there was a history of that. Um, Athens was the center of art and athletics. It, was, it housed one of the largest stadiums in the world at that time. And you can go there today and even see that. It also housed the original Olympics. And so you see, this is a very influential place that Paul was going to. So let's keep reading. It says he was waiting for, for uh, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. And so it says he was deeply distressed. So if, I'm not sure what your Bible says, but whatever that term in your Bible is, underline that. He was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Underline full of idols. And so there was an ancient saying in Athens: It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And so literally, you go to Athens, even today, I've never been, I've just seen pictures. You walk down the street, there's a lot of temples. Temple, 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 temple. You see, you see a temple to this God, temple to that God. You see temples uh, to every God in the region, and you see them being worshipped as pagan gods, and, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it broke Paul's heart. Let's keep reading. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so Paul, what he was doing, he was always starting in the synagogues because the Judaizers had an understanding of who God was. In the Bible, you see the gospel is for what? The gospel or the, the God was for the, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. God's promise was always for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. So Paul took that quite literally. When he went to a city, he went to the synagogue first to, 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 to witness and minister to the Judaizers to try to flip them to Christianity because they already had an established viewpoint of who God was and that part of who God was was accurate. So they were trying to say that the Son of God has come, the Messiah has come. 
And so there was some context for that gospel to take root. And then the marketplaces, what you see here, the marketplace that Paul was in, what you're looking at is this was not just a place where he shops. So this is not some creepy dude hanging out at the Target checkout line um, trying to share the gospel. This is where... This is where people of all cultures would come and mingle and, and share life with. They would, have, they would share meals together. There would be all kinds of opportunities to have conversations about philosophy and about who God was, what your beliefs are, what your beliefs are. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's bounce those things off of one another. And so it wasn't just some creepy old dude sharing the gospel in Walmart. So verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is, the, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? So this ignorant show-off, some versions, some versions say babbler, some versions say seed picker. Basically what that means is you birds that, that pick up seeds off the ground, chew it and spit it out. Basically, don't, he don't know what he's talking about. A babbler is basically saying that he has a second-class mind. He don't know what he's saying. He's heard somebody else say something. He's repeating it. And so it's kind of like this guy has no, no idea what he's talking about. He's just a, he's a, he's an idiot, basically what they're saying. But what I want to show you in verse 18, there's a couple of different types of philosophers here that I want to dive into because you can see these in our culture. Um, the Epicureans, they're basically hedonists. They were about pleasure. They wanted to be, they wanted all the physical pleasure they can get. Anything that would provide pleasure, they wanted to do it. And it was very, it was very, very um, pagan. They believed that the gods were composed of atoms that were so fine that they dwell in a space between the worlds. Real, really weird stuff. And they don't care about this world. So the gods don't care. So you can just live it up. Do what you want to do. Drink what you want to drink. Go where you want to go. Be with who you want to be with. Make yourself happy. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They're, God was everywhere. God's in that table. God's in the sky. God's in that bottle. God's all over the place. And their emphasis was on personal discipline and self-control. And so what it looks like, pleasure was not good and pain was not evil. There was this happy medium they tried to stay in all the time. The most important thing in life was to follow one's reason, be self-sufficient, figure out how to do life, be unmoved by your inner feelings or outward circumstances, and what's so funny, what I find kind of ironic is the two founding fathers of the Stoicism committed suicide. The Epicurean said, enjoy life. Do everything you can. Enjoy, 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 enjoy. The Stoic said, endure life. Y'all know some people like this, right? I want to do everything, right? Enneagram sevens, right? So Stoics, endure life, right? I'm not going to go there. Endure life, endure life, endure life. But what I want to say is like, so they called Paul a show-off, and this was a very derogatory term meant to insult Paul, no doubt. And so what was happening is this Greek word, what it meant was, and I told you, I want you to think, think about a chicken. They were, they, were, they were comparing Paul to a chicken. And babblers were these people that had these second-class minds. And what I want to tell you is it's so easy to be discouraged by the world around us, when you, when, around you, that they're thinking that you have a second-class mind for believing the gospel. Because sometimes when you get into an intellectual conversation, what happens when you start sharing your faith about the gospel? They turn off because they think you're crazy. They think you don't have intelligence. They don't think you're smart. They don't think, what I understand is that you have to remember that, that Jesus said this would happen. It happened to Jesus. It's happening to Paul. And if you're a committed follower of Jesus, it's gonna to happen to you. But look what happens next. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the area. Areopagus, sorry, and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange. 
to us and we want to know what these things mean. And so you look, Aragopagus was basically translated as Mars Hill. This is a place where um, all the, the, you can think about it as like the, 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 the Senate. Uh, the, the Roman Senate is what you're looking at. Kind of a, a council of elders is more of a, a better way to look at it. And so they invited this babbler, which makes no sense to me, the Areopagus. And, they, and they're like, well, this guy, he, I kind of, I don't know, I've never heard this before. It sounds strange. Let's hear more. And so basically this was a, this was an interview for Paul. This was an interview. This is like a, a perfect scenario to share the gospel. This is an open door. If you're wondering, as you're reading scripture, you wanna know what an open door looks like? Somebody inviting you to their home asking about what you believe. Open door, right there. The gospel is about to be preached. And these philosophers, they were always looking out for what's new, the new gods. They had the Parthenon. They, had, they always had these spots just in case they forgot a God. They can put a God there to worship because they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of God that they, gods that they worshiped. So this was basically an interview and they were trying to see if this new God, Jesus, had the intellectual prowess to be in their Parthenon. And so Paul, if he was like me and some other people, he's licking his chops at this point. He's like, I get to stand before your government and tell you about Jesus? Yes, I'm in. Let's do this thing. Let's look at 22, verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the area. I can't say this word, bro. Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. And so I really feel like I, I love Paul in this moment. There, there's, a, there's a sense of passive aggressiveness or sarcasm or something in this speech that I love. This was, and so I'm like, man, I think this is funny. The word religious used here in the Greek is it could be positive or negative. Some translations call it superstitious. They call it superstitious, which would, of course, be negative, right? If somebody says, hey, you're pretty superstitious, it's like, nah, okay, whatever. But it could also mean spiritual, which would have been a compliment to him. But I think that Paul intentionally inserted this double meaning into this phrase. And I think as Luke was writing this out, it's kind of like, <laughs> you see, nobody, nobody got it. And so, like, I think it was funny. It was, I, I love these moments in the Bible. Don't overlook these things. This is kind of a funny Bible, you know, funny part of the Bible. Paul's ribbing them. Verse 23. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This is his life. This is his intro. I, I see your God that you say is unknown, but uh, this is what I'm about to talk to you about actually is that God, okay? So here we go, let's get into this. And this was their just in case God. This was their God that just in case they needed to cover their bases on an area, this was their just in case the real God didn't get covered in the thousands of statues. Here's to you, unknown God. We worship you too. We don't know anything about you, but we worship you too. We love you too. We're, we worship all these other gods, yes, but we like you too. Um, just please save us and don't kill us all. Right? He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I'm gonna tell you about him because I know him. He starts with their question, right? He starts with where they're at. He starts with who, who they're worshiping. He starts with who they, they think they're worshiping. And this is a very significantly different than how he engages the Jews, right? You look in verse two of chapter 17, it says, Paul went to the synagogue and reasoned, excuse me, not verse, it's verse, yeah, whatever. Anyway, you'll, you'll find it, it's in 17. He reasoned, it says, and reasoned with them from the scripture. For these guys, they, did, they don't accept the authority of scripture. 
Paul starts where they're at. So he starts with their question. Now watch what he does. Verse 24 and 25. I love this. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Do not, do, he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He points out the logical problems with our approach to God. He points out, do you really, does it really make sense that the God who created everything in the world could be contained inside of a temple or he would need you to put food out for him, right? He's, he's pointing to them like, Look, guys, do you really, is, it, is, this, is this real? Is this real life? You know, is, this really, is this what you think God is like? This, he points to the, the insufficiencies in their argument. Verse 26, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this, well, why did he do this? So that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And so he's actually doing two things here. First, he's saying the real God is not, the, the, the real God is not some tribal deity who, is, who has jurisdiction over a, a limited sphere like the ocean or the, the mountains or the sky or the sun the God of the sea, the God of the Ephesians, the God of good sex, all these gods that they had that were trying to, to worship in different spectrums, God is not limited to those things. The real God of creation, he's the, he's the creator of the whole world and all mankind, and he encompasses all things. And the second thing he was doing is he's showing them the greatest pursuit that they can have in life is to find him. Not to find anything else but Jesus, but the one who created it all. And something else to note is in, in Greek and in, in the Roman gods, were, there were always a means to something else. Every god they worshiped was a means to get something from that god. There, there was a, they, were, they were trying to add something to their faith. They were trying to add these things. You can look at Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of, of prosperity and money. If you wanted that, you went to her temple and made offerings. Here's some food, here's some stuff. Make me rich. And that was their prayer. Um, Athena, the goddess of wisdom and politics in her temple, they had the picture of Zeus's head being split open and her taking out. And if you wanted to be smart, to have wisdom, you worshiped her. You brought her offerings. You brought her things that would just make you smart. Then you had Nike, which we have our shoe line and clothing line, Nike. She was the goddess of victory made you run faster, jump higher. They were worshiped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan um, or LeBron James for some of you younger guys. Um, <laughs> Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality, of, of, of beauty, of, of fertility. And so you, you went to her for reasons of, you, you can guess, you know? So you, offer, you offered things for different things so that you can get something from those gods. But Paul is saying, the one true God, Yahweh, is so glorious and transcendent that Paul says he is his own reward. Jesus is his own reward and not to be sought for means of anything else. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the one that we worship. Jesus is the one that we adore, not to get anything, but just to sit in his presence and say, thank you, God, for giving us the gift of Jesus. Thank you, for God, for giving us the gift of the gospel. Lord, that is enough. That's sufficient. That is all we need. If we lost everything, if every single one of us lost everything we had, every family member we had, Jesus would still be enough. I'm telling you that now. Verse 28. 
For in him we live and move and, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And this is interesting here. These are actually two quotes, but they're not from Scripture. A lot of people have quoted these like these are from Scripture, but they're actually not from Scripture. If you look at this, this is a song written about Zeus 600 BC, 600 years before Christ. The other was a, a poem written by a Stoic poet. And what I wanna show you is that you can see that Paul is very well-versed in his culture that he's in. He's well-versed, he knows the culture. He's, he's, he's well-versed enough in his culture that he can start where they're at by sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? So instead of maybe pushing the culture aside, maybe it's time we got to know it and learn how to talk to our culture. And what he was doing is he was showing them that they've stumbled onto the right answers, but they had not understood the right answer yet. And so now you look how Paul concludes this interaction with these guys, and he points out and confronts their idolatry and their religion. He says in verse 29, since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul's basically saying, if God is the creator, then you're foolish to think that you can reduce him to something that you can hold in your hands. Does that make sense? Leviticus 19.4, we said this a few weeks ago. It says, do not turn to idols or make cast images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Don't try to create an image of who I am. And stamp my name on it because guess what? It's going to be wrong. Nothing you create can come close. And then you look finally, Paul in verse 30 and 31 comes back and says, he shares the gospel with these guys. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, basically God has, in the past, he overlooked the ignorance of man. God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus has come. Jesus has revealed truth. Jesus is a perfect revelation of who God is. And God has given us proof that he is the one true God by raising him from the dead. And look at their responses in verse 31. <clears throat> 32, excuse me, 32 and 34. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear more from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed. And so as you look at this, there's three options. Some people made fun. Some people wanted to hear more. Some people believed. And you should be able to right now identify someone in your life in some of these categories. Has someone mocked you for your faith? ridiculed you for your faith as you shared it with them? As someone asked you to, to, to give you more information about what God is, is doing in your life? Or, or, and also, have you, have you noticed someone that's joined you in your, in your faith, in your faith walk? Uh, you should be able to point to those people. And if not, I would say you're probably not preaching the gospel because those three things are very common as we share Christ with people. And I wanna tell you is there's, there's always a response to the gospel. There's always a response. It's either... It's either accepting it or rejecting. And I say not responding all the time is rejection. And as I read through these things, this chapter, three things really popped out. There's really three questions that I wanna ask you as we go. 
if you're sitting at home, you can write these down, or if you're here, you can write them down. But there's three things that I really want us to take away from this chapter um, really quickly. And I want to ask you these questions to challenge you. But as you live life, as you do life around us, if you connect groups, as you walk around the city, does the idolatry around you break your heart? Are we, to make it simpler, are we heartbroken by the idolatry around us? Are we heartbroken by the idolatry around us? When Paul saw these elaborate temples in Athens of, to various gods, they didn't intimidate him. They didn't seduce him to worship. Paul wasn't like, ooh, I'd like to go in there. I wanna go see the Nike temple. You know, I wanna go see that check mark. You know, let's go do that. I wanna go here, I wanna go there. Paul was not seduced by them to worship those gods. He was brokenhearted. It broke his heart. When you see idolatry in our culture, what's your reaction? When you watch things like the Oscars or the Grammys or different things, or what, what emotion fills you? Is it people that are like, man, those people are awesome. I wanna be like that. Or is it, man, these people are so far from God. Does it break your heart? Is it admiration or heartbreak? If you're, if you're not provoked by idolatry of our culture, the sensuality, uh, it, it points to you being more worldly in your thinking and out of touch with the gospel in your mind. And what happens is on the other side of that though, where I think a lot of Christians find themselves is if you're one of the people who just looks at our culture, sees idolatry, gets angry and says to hell with the world, then you're out of touch with the gospel too. See, Paul was burdened by the idolatry that he saw, and he, but he didn't run from the people of Athens. He ran to them with compassion and it, with love. And that's what Jesus did for me and for you. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what we're called to do for the culture around us is to run to them because idolatry, what it should create in us as people, it should create two reactions. It should create heartbreak, which leads us to compassion. Heartbreak, which leads us to compassion. And this is what we need for our city. People deeply aware of our culture, able to dialogue with it, but untainted by it. So understanding it, having the wisdom to know how to speak to it, but not being tainted by it. Stepping out, understanding when God says you've been set apart, that you're set apart. Understanding that God's giving you the power of the Holy Spirit, that God has given you the power of the Holy Spirit and you need to walk in it. Because if we're carrying the message of the gospel with us, it will change our hearts and it will produce an urgency in us to seek out the lost and to share the hope of the gospel like Paul did to the Athenians. And you can even be a little bit funny, you can see in chapter 17. So are we robbing glory from God? That's my question. By the way we live. Are we robbing glory from him or are we bringing him fame and glory by the way that we're carrying out his mission around us? We have to get to know our culture, pay attention to it so that we can be relevant as we meet it because what happens is the Christianity and the church has been so separated from the culture, it's become irrelevant to it. So when you try to share your faith, when you try to walk alongside of somebody that doesn't know Jesus or somebody who's been stuck in idolatry and you try to share your life with them, it doesn't make sense because you're from two different worlds. And my heart is that we would understand that that's the only way Paul was burdened by the idolatry. He had spent some time getting to know it and a lot of us get angry where our culture is headed but we're not actually listening to what the people are saying. 
We're not actually listening to what they're saying. They're actually crying out for God. We've been, we've been so quick to share our opinions on different things, different social topics, but we've been so slow to share the gospel. And we need to figure out how to get back to our roots and how to love people first by sharing the gospel through compassion and love. Because think about this, man. We send people overseas to full-time missions. Like I know a guy named, I think his name is Jose. He was, he was a friend of ours that, that, that is planning a church somewhere in, in, in China, I believe it is. And he is, he's moving there to start a business. And he's going to learn the language. He's spending time, spending time, spending time learning the language. He said he's going to take him six years to, to learn the language. And then he's going to try to plant a church or, or before, he even, before he even goes in and tries to witness to people. There's time spent. There's, there's training involved. They give their lives to be able to help create avenues to see the gospel reach a different culture. For all of us, for all of us here, have we done that? Do we, do we create bridges or barriers for people to come to Christ? Are we creating a bridge? Come this way, come to the Lord, come to the Lord. Am I creating a barrier, making somebody feel unworthy because of the way that they're living, because they're living like the world, because they're worldly? That's normal, just so you know. But here's our, have our insecurities, our need to be funny or right, our sarcasm and our abrasiveness created bridges are barriers to the gospel being poured out of our lives. Has idolatry spilled over into the church? The answer is yes, it has. How have we responded to the idolatry in the church? How have we done that? How have we responded? Have we sought it out and tried to, to snuff it out and tried to preach truth in those areas? Because here's the response of a follower of Jesus. Jesus inside of you creates a love for people that's too big to leave our culture and their idolatry. Paul's an example. Idolatry should provoke us to seek and seek and speak up and for God's glory and for people's salvation, not abrasively, but with truth and love and compassion because here's why. Because that's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. I was an idolater. I was a sinner. I was, a, I was lost. I was dying. I was dead in my sin. That was what Ephesians 2 said. But Paul, but Paul as you see Paul, Paul was living in Christ and and he was walking out the, the identity of what Christ has put in him and what Jesus did is Jesus saw me in my idolatry. He wasn't turned off by that. He was heartbroken, but instead of condemning me and writing me off, he ran to me, not away from me. Isn't that awesome? That's what it's about. He showed us, he showed me, he showed you as a Christian the insufficiency of the answers to the life that I'm living. And then he revealed God to us in his death and resurrection. This is the call of God's mission. This is what I mean when I say you are sent. As God has done for us, let us go outside those doors and do for others. The second thing, do you worship an unknown God? This is a big question. I know you're like, what, Michael? I worship the true God. Like, listen, there's a lot of churches in this country maybe in this city, that worship an unknown God and call him Jesus. My question is not meant to insinuate that our God is unknowable because he's very knowable because he sent Jesus. My question hopes to challenge you on if you're worshiping a version of God that you've created to be safe, convenient, and comfortable, or if you've submitted to and surrendered to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you seek things 
things to satisfy you? Do you seek things instead of God? Do you buy more things and spend time doing things that scratch that itch that's inside of you that only Jesus can satisfy? Or the Athenians, they were worshiping the unknown God in ignorance, man. But some of us are doing the same thing. <clears throat> and there's, there's, there's three little statements that, I, I, that God just kept putting in my heart is that to know God is to be changed by God. To know God has to be changed by God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that, that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's a changing that takes place. To know God is to die to self. To know God is to come alive in Christ. Guys, Jesus is the only way. And if we have that way, it's time for us to share with people around us who are stuck in idolatry. Any other version of Jesus than what we find in Scripture is an idol. And is a false God. And if you had to store the truth of the gospel in your life, either consciously or subconsciously to make following Jesus easy or less sacrificial, you aren't following Jesus anymore, but an unknown God. And like the Athenians, you have to repent and turn to Christ, which leads me to my last point. Are you satisfied? And satisfied is in all caps in my notes. Are you satisfied with Jesus alone. Let that simmer for a second and think about that. Are you satisfied with Jesus alone? That's a big question. You can look over in Colossians chapter one again if you want. I told you we'd come back here and we did. Verse 15, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominion, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in, he might come to have first place in everything, supremacy in all things. For God was pleased to have him have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Are you brave enough this morning, whether you're at home, whether you're in this room, to confront the idols in your life that are competing for the throne of your heart? I'm talking to me, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to our leadership, and I'm talking to anybody watching. Are you brave enough to confront the idols in your life that are competing for the throne of your heart because dissatisfaction in life is near to every root of sin. Why do people cheat on their spouses? Why do people abuse drugs, alcohol? Why do people mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of TV shows that are stupid in the first place? Why do people scroll endlessly through Facebook and Twitter and steal money or, or steal objects? Why do people commit suicide? Why do people run out on their families? Why? All of these things happen because people haven't found happiness. 
And people set up this idol and this idol and this idol and this idol and this idol until you're surrounded by idols and you think you've isolated yourself and insulated yourself so well that you have everything nice and pretty, everything's wonderful, like you like it, until something happens in your life and a crisis hits like the coronavirus or like a disease in your family or like a death or like something you have to move for work or you lose your job or you go bankrupt or the, or the U.S. currency drops and you have no more money. What happens? when one of those idols is tipped over? What happens when this idol is tipped over? What happens when your idols start falling down and you start having no satisfaction in life anymore because the things you once put in your life for satisfaction starts falling away? What happens? If you are truly a Christian in this place, in Christ, we already possess wholeness, fullness, and satisfaction that we need in Christ. This is what we call in in the church, the sufficiency of Christ. He's sufficient in every area. Point me to one thing in your life and I'll say Christ is sufficient to meet that need. Christ is sufficient, Christ is sufficient, Christ is sufficient. And this is the ultimate knowing, the gnosko of God, knowing Him intimately, knowing Him beyond all things, knowing Him, but also guess what? I'm also known by God. The God that created everything that you see knows my name. And my name was on his lips when he died on the cross because he died for me. He died for you. And he died for those of you at home that worship him as Lord. Guys, we were designed for more than a a trivial pursuit of worship. We were designed more for those things. The hard truth that we will never find relief if we continue to seek the possessions and the things of life. We'll never find those satisfactions in people, possessions. There's not enough money on this earth to, to, to satisfy you. The richest man in this world, guess what he's doing tomorrow? He's gonna try to make more money. The guy that owns the most cars in this world, guess what he's gonna try to do next week? Buy or trade or sell another car, right? There's not enough to satisfy the quenching of your soul because your soul needs Jesus. But once you're finally exhausted from your pursuits, once you're left empty handed and disappointed and your idols are on the ground, you've understand that you've wasted valuable time chasing nothing when you could have been pursuing true joy and peace in Jesus. The problem is our hearts are black holes of discontentment, devouring relationships and possessions. And while screaming, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. We're always eating, but we're famished. We're always drinking, but we're never satisfied. Always. The Bible is full of promises though to fulfillment, but the fulfillment is only found in Jesus. John chapter six, verse 35 says, I'm the way, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's Jesus. Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. The things that we give ourselves to are nothing on the radar of the pleasures that Jesus offers us. You can't imagine. If you've been worshiping an unknown unknown God this morning, my prayer is that you would know this God as we end the service. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the beauty of it. I don't care if you're sitting at home or if you're sitting in here, my heart will be that you would get on your knees and cry out to the one who made a way for you when there was no way. 
because Jesus made a way, because God sending Jesus to us, making him sin is phenomenal. Get your mind around that. And, but him making us the righteousness of God through Jesus makes no sense to my human brain. And, but I will spend the rest of my days trying to figure out how that worked until I see him and able to ask him and wrap my arms around him and say, man, wow. So just a minute, I just wanna challenge you. If, you're, if you know that you've been worshiping an unknown God or you know that you're not a Christian in this place, we're gonna we're going have a time of just prayer at the altar. Um, we're gonna dismiss, anybody wants to go, you can leave. But if, if you know you just wanna have some prayer time, Kevin's gonna play. There's gonna be some time at the altar. Um, if you're at home worshiping, Kevin's gonna still play for you, but there may be something else on the screen besides my ugly face. And you'll be able to pray at home with your family. Maybe crowd around the, the couch with your family, maybe sit at your dining room table, whatever that looks like, but just spend some time in prayer, crying out to the true God who loves you enough to send his son. But all you have to do is say, Jesus, I don't have enough. I need you. Father, I, I'm a sinner. God, I, I, know, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I need a savior, God, and I'm putting my trust and my faith in you to save me. God, please save me. And that's all it takes. Repent of your sins and turn to him and walk in him and get involved in community. Christian, if you're in this place and you're a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, Acts 17, verse six, there's a little statement there where the, you know, they, the Thessalonians were causing a revolt and they were going after Paul and, and those guys and they were saying, look, they're at Jason's house. So we're going over to Jason's house. There's a guy named Jason in the law. It's pretty cool, right? So we're going over to Jason's house because these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now I'm sure whoever wrote that was like, man, that's a, that's a great compliment. Thank you. That's great. Like the, the men who turn the world upside down have come here too. The Christian I wanna ask you tonight or today, this morning, whether you're home or here, is that have you turned the world upside down by the way that you've lived for Christ? Or have you flown under the radar trying to just get by, just making sure that you're, there's no bumps or no, no, no unforeseen things? You've set your life up so secure that if nobody ever talks to you, it's really okay. You know what I mean? And so try to try to get your mind around, God, I, Lord, I know that you wanna do a big work through my life because you created me for a purpose, but have I turned the world upside down through living for you and through you living through me? Ask that question today. As a church, are we committed to turning the world upside down for the kingdom? I, I want to. I wanna see what that looks like. So I'm about to pray for us. And as I pray, you come or I mean, whenever I'm done praying, we can dismiss, but... Um, don't miss this opportunity to come before the Lord and just spend some time in prayer with your family or at home. Um, and I just want to I just want to tell you I love you and I'm thankful for those of you that are home that are watching and for those of you that are here. Um, thank you for being here this morning. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us as orphans. God, we thank you, Lord, that you came after us in our sin. Not only did you come after us in our sin, God, but you, but you, you sent your Son to die for us, Lord. What a, what a, what a sacrifice, Lord. What a Savior. God, ignite a fire in our hearts to go after your kingdom and see it built in this city. God, I pray for walls to fall down in the city for your gospel message to be able to go out clearly to people's ears. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done in this church to this point. God, we thank you for the vision that you've given this church. We thank you for what you're gonna do in the future, God, because we know that you have big plans for this body. God, unify us, grow us in love. 
God, grow us in maturity and then send us out. God, raise up men and women in this church to be warriors. God, to be mighty men and women of valor, to be mighty men and women who are leaders in this body, to raise up the next generation, who raises up the next generation, where we see a leadership factory happening in this place to be sent out to Savannah, Chatham County, to Georgia, and to the world. God, we praise you, we love you, we thank you. And it's in your name I pray, amen.